Hey, I want to let you know uh, if you've been wondering about where we are on the um, purchase of the South Sound Community Church um, process, um, things are moving, and things are moving rapidly. We're going to close on that purchase on the 21st of June. Um, all kinds of work is going into planning, and there's going to be renovations throughout the summer. Uh, John Davis is uh, freaking out. He's got all kinds of pressure on him. Be nice to him. Pray for him. He's our project manager. We appreciate him so much and all the work that he's doing and the creative thinking he's doing. And uh, so um, things are moving, and you'll hear more as, as we, move, we move along. We are in Romans. What a surprise, huh? Continuing in Romans, the gospel of God concerning his son. Our title this morning is Encircled by the Love of God. And we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. We're going to dive right in, so I want to invite you to stand again with me, and let's read our scripture this morning. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week, we examined Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as we came to the close of that passage, we read this statement from the Apostle Paul. Hope, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And in that, he's saying to us that our hope in Christ will never disappoint us. It'll never let us down. We'll never be put to shame. Notice the evidence to which he points. And let me just add this. If, if, you're, if you're asking the question, what evidence is there of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? What evidence is there for the hope that we have in Christ? Paul is pointing us to two very significant points of evidence. So notice the evidence to which he points In verses 1 through 5, if you have your Bible open, he says, God keeps on flooding, 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 keeps on flooding our hearts with his love by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He he keeps on flooding our hearts, has heard Paul pointed out that we've received the Spirit of God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2.12, our hope in Christ is rewarded then with a fresh, day-by-day, moment-by-moment awareness of His incomprehensible love for us. God's Holy Spirit who enters our lives when we transfer our trust from ourselves to Christ, is at work helping us to grasp the reality of what it means to be encircled, embraced by the love of God. 
Today's passage, Paul points to another criteria, perhaps the the ultimate evidence for why our hope in Christ will never disappoint us or put us to shame, which is the love of God that was demonstrated at the cross. So Paul begins verse 6, For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's a, a packed statement. Let's begin with that first phrase, while we were weak. Paul's saying that we had no strength, first of all. Strength for what? We lacked the resources to save ourselves. We had no power to please God. We had no capacity to meet his righteous standards. We were bound by the shackles of sin, powerless to break free, destined for an eternity separated from God. Nothing we could do. We were weak. We were powerless. The good news is that while we were weak, Christ, Paul says, died for the ungodly. Not only were we powerless, but we were ungodly. That is, we neither respected nor honored God. We had no regard for him. We had no time for him. Christ didn't come to die for the godly. He came to die for the ungodly. Amen? And that's me. And that's you. And then he says, when Christ died for us, he did so at the right time. Verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In another place, Galatians 4.4, Paul wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The right time, the fullness of time. What do those expressions mean? I'll be honest, I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. A lot of, if you read commentaries, you read theologians, there's all kinds of speculation about what exactly it means. I don't buy most of that. Where I take my rest on the question is that the sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise God who knows the end from the beginning and is administering all of history toward an appointed culmination to bring everything in heaven and earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ made a cosmic executive decision that the time was right for Christ to appear to reveal God to us, to suffer and to die for our sins, to be raised again from the dead. So when we read that Christ died for the ungodly at the right time, it it seems to me that we need to understand it from the perspective first of God, whose plan from before creation was to send his Son to be our Savior, and who determined that the decisive moment had finally come. And next, Paul says that it, well, it was while we were still sinners. While we were weak, while we were still sinners. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe you're familiar with that verse, maybe you're not, but let it sink in for a moment. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The most remarkable thing about the sacrificial death of Christ was that it took place while we were still sinners. That God didn't wait for us to evolve, as some people think we will, to a higher state of moral and spiritual perfection. We never will. 
nor did he wait for us to do something deserving of his love that would, that would merit his favor, that would, that would just trigger him to say, oh, I can't help but love you. The fact is, we never will. We never could. The, the amazing, scandalous message of the gospel is that Christ died for us while we were still alienated from him and cared nothing for his attention, cared nothing for his affection. Paul wrote that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There was nothing in you and there was nothing in me that merited his love, that deserved anything from him but judgment, that Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John in the, uh, the epistle that's, uh, that bears his name, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he, he wrote, this is how we know. Notice this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Notice what he's saying. The action that Jesus took to lay down his life for undeserving, ungrateful, unresponsive, unthoughtful, unrepentant, rebellious sinners stands at the center of history as the ultimate and quintessential demonstration of the nature of genuine love. In another place, John wrote, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that would turn away wrath for our sins. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. See, the sacrificial death of Christ for sinners is the demonstration of God's love. If you're looking for a real friend, you'll never find a greater friend than Jesus. Single women, are you wondering what real love will look like when it comes around? Look at Jesus. And then look for a man who's a genuine follower of Jesus, who's a sinner, yes. There's no one else to marry. But who also, because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, possesses the capacity to fulfill the command of God to husbands in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you no wonder that in another place, John the Apostle exclaimed, How great, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. The cross defines what Scripture means by love, and it's not primarily sentiment, it's not emotion, but it's selfless, sacrificial action. That's not all, at all to suggest that the love ought not to be felt, because we read over and over in the pages of Scripture that God experiences and expresses a full range of emotions, including affection. But love is not proven by how we feel. It never can. Love is proven, love is evidenced by sacrificial action. We humans have have speculated about this love thing since the dawn of time. 
What is it? How does it work? Where does it come from? How do I get it? Early 20th century songwriter Cole Porter asked the question in one of his songs, what is this thing called love? Several decades later, songwriter Michael Leslie Jones penned these words that he sang and recorded with his obscure little band called Foreigner. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. See, the Bible's answer is that love is known when it is shown through sacrificial demonstration. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Third, Paul says that it was while we were not just weak, not just sinners, but while we were enemies, while we were enemies. In verses 9 and 10, Paul Paul presents two if-then kind of statements, and, and, and they're tied together with the phrase, much more. Verse 9 and the second time in verse 10. First in verse 9 he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the first premise is this, that, that we've, we've now been declared righteous on the basis of the shedding of Christ's blood. And that's what we call justification. That God, the righteous judge, declares us righteous. He credits to us, credits our faith to us as righteousness. And since that is true, Paul says, it's far more certain, far more certain that we will be saved from wrath by him. We think of wrath, sometimes we think of Cecil B. DeMille's depictions and, and, and movie depictions of the wrath of God. This statement, we will be saved from wrath by him, speaks in the future tense. It indicates that the wrath that, that Paul's thinking about, he's writing about, is the wrath that will be expressed at the end of time, the culmination of history, and at, the, at the last judgment. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul described Jesus as the one who saves us from the wrath to come, the wrath that, that will take place, will be expressed, will be poured out. See, if you've ever wondered if you're really going to heaven, this is a wonderful promise. How many of you have ever wondered that? I have. Several times every day. Really? If you've ever wondered that, if you've ever pondered that, if you've ever been anxious about that, this is a wonderful promise. See, if, if you've transferred your trust from your performance, from your morality, from your religion, from your ability to please God, to Christ and what he accomplished for you at the cross, then you've been justified by faith. That's what, that's what the Bible says. And, and Jesus himself, here's the promise, will save you from the wrath to come. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. You will not go to hell. You will go to heaven. You will not be the recipient of the wrath of God at the end of time, at the end of your life. 
goes on, he says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So here's a, here's a second if-then kind of statement. And it's parallel to the first one. If, if while we were enemies, he says, if we were in that state, if, if, if we were antagonistic to God, enemies of him, hostile towards him, at war with him, if, if, if in that condition God would act to save us, to deliver us, to forgive us, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his, what? Life. His life. The transaction that the transaction took place while we were in a state of hostility toward God. You, you might say, I've never been hostile toward God. I've never been an enemy of God. But there's two witnesses against you in that. First of all is God himself. And the second is your sin. Both of those things say that you were in rebellion against God, hostile toward him. See, justification is judicial. It's important for us to understand. It, on the basis of your faith, and we've been seeing this in Romans, that, that faith is credited to us as righteousness, that God, the righteous judge, declares a verdict, and he, he hands down a verdict that says, not acquitted, because acquitted says, well, you didn't really do it. It's not acquittal. It's, it's a verdict of not guilty because someone paid the price. Someone paid the penalty of your sin. And it's a judicial decision that God hands down. He declares you just. He declares you righteous on the basis of the, the shed blood of Christ that you look to the cross and you say, I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to trust in what Jesus did for me at the cross. And God says, that's enough for me. Because the blood of Christ was enough for me. It was, it was the ultimate and complete and full and final payment for all of our sin. So justification is judicial, but reconciliation is relational. And what that means is that once having been offered, forgiveness then has to be received. You have a part in this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, yes, yet he also adds that every person must respond in faith for the forgiveness to become effective in his or her case. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Paul and company, and we here today, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You say, well, if, if, what, if what Jesus did was enough, if it was complete in itself, and it was, so why do I have to do anything else? It's because faith, and we've been talking about this, we've been talking about faith as the, the receptor of the heart, that, that faith is kind of the hand that reaches out of the heart to receive what God offers. Reci- reconciliation indicates a personal relationship. It can't 
merely be a unilateral action on the part of God alone. He's provided forgiveness for all people through the once-for-all death of his Son. But it's only when that forgiveness is accepted by faith that the deal is completed, the transaction takes place, reconciliation occurs. God's part is finished, has been finished, from the moment Jesus said it is finished on the cross. And our part is a matter of individual decision. Paul goes on, he says, we were reconciled by his death. We are being saved by his life. It's agreed the reconciliation came through the death of Christ. The the line of reasoning continues. How much more shall we be saved through his life? Have have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing with his time these days? The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God. And you say, well, Jesus is just sitting around. No. We know at least two things he's doing. One, he's preparing a place for us that one day he's going to come again to take us back to. But the Bible also says that he was always interceding for us. The risen, glorified, ascended Christ intercedes for us before the Father. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? It means that he's always praying for you. It means when an accusation is brought against you, he intercedes for you. And when when Satan accuses you before the Father, Jesus says, no, he or she is mine. My blood covered that sin. My, My blood covered every sin. He's always interceding for us. And because that's true, we have the hope of heaven. We have daily deliverance from the power of sin. doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. We do. But it means that as we do, sin no longer has power over us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But through Jesus, God has made every provision for us to live out our lives in holiness. And it all began at the cross. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And when I read those descriptions... I see myself. I see the work of Christ for me. But I also think of another man that played momentarily in the story of Jesus, whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Watch this. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative, his name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. 
He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner. A man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. People say, give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. Your kids. There's only one. 
And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No. God, I I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high? so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive. Let me have your sin, son. Okay. When I give him my sin, let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were going to set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. I don't know what happened to Barabbas. I'd like to think that he might have trusted in what Jesus did for him there at the cross. But I do know what is true of those who have. Paul concludes in verse 11, we continue to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ.
And we have great reason to rejoice. We've trusted, we have trusted in Christ, have been justified by his blood. We've been reconciled to God. We've been saved from the wrath that's coming. And because he lives and intercedes for us, we are being saved from day to day by his life. At the heart of God's redemptive plan stands one solitary figure, Jesus Christ, his son, our savior, and through his death, he has made it possible for those who believe to receive forgiveness, freedom, freedom, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin. And he's made it possible for us to enter into an eternal relationship of joy and love with God the Father. God demonstrated his love for you at the cross. You can give him your sin. You can give him your shame. You can give him your your failure because Jesus is enough. The blood of Christ that was shed for you is more than enough, and it keeps on cleansing you from all sin, all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus will never, ever lose its power. So will you receive it? Will you receive it? Will you transfer your trust for your eternal salvation to what Christ accomplished? at the cross, while you were weak, while you were a sinner, while you were an enemy. This morning we have the privilege of witnessing the baptisms of some people who have received that free gift of God through personal faith in Jesus. And I want you to know this morning that what you're going to see is not the moment of their salvation. The, the baptism doesn't save anybody. Used to be a, a huge business here in this area whose slogan was, It's the water. But when it comes to our salvation, it's not the water, it's the blood that cleanses us, keeps on cleansing us, moment by moment, day by day, from all of our sin. So as they enter into the water, what they're declaring is something that's already taken place, that they have transferred their trust. That, that that thing has taken place and they have received God's forgiveness for their sin and they're, they're declaring as they go into the water of baptism that I've decided to follow Jesus. And, and from this moment on, you can know that that is true. You can hold me accountable for that. You can encourage me in that. You can partner with me in that. They're saying that their sins have been forgiven. They've been justified by faith. They've been saved from the power of their sin and the penalty of their sin forever. They've been reconciled to God. Their eternity is secure. Their names are written down in heaven. And they're declaring today to you that Jesus is enough for them. And they've decided to follow him. So I'm going to invite the band to come, and as they do, uh, and they're going to lead us in a song, and as they do, we're going to celebrate communion, as is our practice. And then we're going to witness the baptisms of 
four people who have decided to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so amazing. Your promises are so true. Your, your love is scandalous. Your grace is amazing. And Lord, we can never quite, quite get over all of that. We thank you today that we are encircled by your love, that we will never plumb the depths, we will never reach the heights, we will never travel the width of your love for us. It's larger and more complete and more sufficient than we can ever imagine. Forgive us, Lord, for questioning that. Help us to grow in our understanding. Help us to trust you, just to lean into you and to know that you are enough. That everything you've done for us is more than enough. For our salvation today, our eternity tomorrow. Thank you for your work in the lives of these four who will be baptized this morning. Some of them young, some of them older. Thank you that at whatever point you choose to intersect our lives, it's the right time. Because you and your wisdom and your grace know when the right time really is. I pray today for those, Lord, who are standing in that gap waiting for some something that will move them over the line of faith. And Lord, I pray that today might be that day that you would grant them the gift of faith that leads to life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.